since um, Colossians comes right after Philippians, we just figure we just keep going. Um, you know, a lot of the time when I'm studying through Scripture, I'm like, okay, maybe I need something else. I'm kind of tired of Paul. Uh, but then when I started studying this particular letter, I'm no longer tired of Paul. Paul is a, uh, he's obviously a, uh, a deep, uh, a person that walked deeply with the Lord and had been deeply impacted by him. But he's also a man of great conviction, and he, he really loved people. You know, a lot of the time when you read Paul or you think about Paul, maybe you're like me where you kind of see this hard-driving missionary that was not going to be stopped by anything. Like he was just this rough and tumble, like get out of my way or I'm going to run you over like a train. But when I read his letters to the churches, I see a different Paul than I see in the book of Acts. Acts kind of lays out like chronologically, this is where Paul went. This is what he was praying about. This is where he landed. And then he's just this bold witness for Jesus in front of people that don't believe and people that are going to put him in prison. Nothing stops him. And yet in the letters of Paul, you get this soft-hearted, charismatic, and yet um, very loving individual. And I think that's interesting because as we think about Christians, and maybe you guys had a different experience, I think about, I had groups of Christians that really never told me about Jesus, and then I had groups of Christians that I knew that were very legalistic, and so they were always calling me out on sin, even though I wasn't a Christian. They weren't telling me that this is God's standard, they were just saying, hey, you can't do that. Well, why not? Tell me why, you know. Maybe I might disagree with you, but let's have the conversation. Well, Paul is getting ready to correct the Colossians. He's getting ready to deal with some problems that they were having and things that they were doing that were going to cause problems down the road in their relationship with the Lord. And he was so concerned that he was willing to speak to them about it. Many times we get concerned about things. We get concerned about people and individuals and things they got going on. And so instead of talking to them about it, many times what we do instead is we kind of, we either text them, which is a bad idea, which is kind of disconnected from a face-to-face conversation, or we complain about them to other people. But Paul writes directly to them. And in the book of Colossians, we see him writing to a church he had never been to. He didn't plant the Colossian church. He actually writes to them as an individual who's never met them, as an individual that heard about them, saw some issues that they had, and wanted to speak to them. And so as we start the book of Colossians, think about this. Paul didn't start the church. Actually, the, the Colo- church there in Colossae was started by uh, two individuals, Epaphras and many believe Philemon. Philemon, you, there's a book or a letter that's written to him concerning his slave that he owned that ran off and basically left. But he escaped and he left um, where Philemon lived and he went to Rome. And when he was in Rome, this uh, slave that... Uh, sorry, I'm getting my my names mixed up, that Philemon had, or anyway, the slave ends up going to Rome, meeting with Paul, and he gets saved. And so Paul writes a letter back to Philemon and says, hey, your slave, Onesimus, no wonder it's hard to remember the names, they're all names we'd never hear. Onesimus, he, he says, why don't you take your slave back? I know that he left you, I know that he's betrayed you, and he lied to you, But now that he came to Rome and he met me, I shared the gospel with him. He's a brother in Christ now. So receive him back, no longer as just a slave, but also as a brother in Christ. He never tells him to make him no longer a slave. He just says, receive him back. He's willing to be forgiven. He needs forgiveness. He needs to be restored. 
So Philemon is a man who owns a slave, so he's probably a guy that has means. But then there's another guy by the name of Epaphras that Paul meets and hears about this church in Colossae. So Colossae's beginnings were in this town of Colossae called um, Colossae, and it was a place that was in a crossroads. Colossae wasn't a big town. Colossae would be more like Arcadia Valley, really. Now, in proportion to the exact amount of people, who knows? But in comparison to Ephesus, which was a center of their nation for where everyone went to, Ephesus was more not just like St. Louis, but probably more like New York City. Everything was going on there. There was movers and shakers and businesses and world trade centers and all these things. Ships would come through, they'd bring their goods, and then they'd also come and they'd worship Diana. So Ephesus, we already studied the the letter to the Ephesians. There was a church there, but the church there grew so well that it became to have branches. Now, if a tree grows up big enough to have branches, you know that it better have some roots. And so it sends out these people that had been affected by the gospel there in Ephesus. And if you look there in Acts chapter 19, Paul, or, uh, Luke writes about this. Or, yeah, Dr. Luke writes in Acts, in chapter 16, 19. I'll get it right. In Acts chapter 19, it says, It happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And finding some disciples, he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? So they said to him, We have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So this is the beginning of the Ephesian church. And he said to them, Verse 3, into what then were you baptized? So they said, we were baptized into John's baptism. If you remember, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, and they would baptize him physically in the water. So this is a starting place. Repentance is the beginning of salvation because we repent to God. We agree with him. I need your forgiveness because I have sinned against you, God. But I recognize that you are right and I am wrong and I want to Ask for forgiveness. I want to change. I want this no longer to be wrong. So he said to them, Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance. That means to turn around from your sin, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is, on Christ Jesus. What they heard, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They spoke with tongues and prophesied, and the men were about twelve in all. So Paul begins the church in Ephesus. And this is important because if you know how the Ephesian church begins, you can, explain, you can understand how the Colossian church begins. Paul goes there and he shares with them the truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. And at that point, we have, not only did he die, but then he was buried and he was raised after three days as the firstborn, the first person to be resurrected from the dead. He, our payment for our sins was received by God and by the power of God, he was raised from the dead, no longer dead, but alive. And now we trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. But repentance is where it begins. Repentance means to turn from your sin and to go the right way. 
If you're driving down the road and someone says, hey, you're going the wrong way if you want to go to Bailey Joe's, and you're driving down the wrong way and you keep going, you will never make it to Bailey Joe's. But if someone says, hey, you're going the wrong way, and you humble yourself and say, okay, you're right, I'm wrong, therefore I'm going to turn around and go the other direction, you'll get your reward, right? You'll get your whatever you want to order at Bailey Joe's. I like the barbecue pizza. But while you're on the road in life, and you believe that your good works will save you, and many people around here do, and someone says to you, your good works are not good enough to save you, you cannot weigh, at the end of time, you cannot weigh your good works against your bad works to be saved. God's not pleased with that. But that you need the righteousness that Jesus has to offer. Turn around. We can do one of two things. We could say, nope, I'm good on my own. And keep driving the same direction. You will not receive the reward you're looking for. But if you will tur- humble yourself, turn around and go back. Say, Lord, you're right. I'm wrong. I need you to be my salvation. Forgiveness comes. We repent and believe. The people in Ephesus did that. But the good news is God doesn't just say, here's my standard, live by it. That's the law. The law says, here's my standard, live by it. And it was never meant to justify anybody, Romans tells us. The law was always meant to show us that we couldn't do it. The law is meant to show us that we cannot live 100% all 613 commandments. It was meant to bring us to our knees to go, God, I know this is your standard, and I know this is what you expect of your children, but I can't do it. And then he goes, good, because I gave you Jesus. I knew you couldn't do it. Here's my grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. We no longer have to live the law. We no longer have to fulfill every command. Now Jesus has fulfilled the law for us, and we can be saved. We can be reconciled, brought back near to God, because God can't be in the presence of sin. But when he looks down on us as we trust in Christ, he sees us covered in Christ and he's pleased in his son. So this church was began with the baptism of repentance. And then he says, but now I've given you. Jesus said, I go to the father, but I'm going to send to you the helper, the Holy Spirit, who will guide you into all truth, who will give you understanding, who will convict you of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So. When you're doing something now as a believer, given the Holy Spirit, and you're like, man, I I don't know if I should be doing this. That's not your conscience. That's not Jiminy Cricket. That's the Holy Spirit saying, you're right. You shouldn't be doing it. Stop it and ask for forgiveness and now move forward in the way that God does want you to go. So he convicts us of sin, not so much to leave us in it and make us feel condemned, but to convict us and bring us back to him. Say, Lord, I, for, I need forgiveness. So this church was began this way. It says, when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They spoke with tongues and prophesied, and the men were about twelve in all. Verse 8, he went into the synagogue, spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. He's speaking to Jewish people. He's speaking to the Israelites. But when some were hardened and did not believe, they heard the truth, they rejected it, They spoke evil of the way. The way is what Christians were called before we started calling it Christianity. The non-believers actually called it the way because Jesus said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. How do I get to God? Take the way. Who's the way? Jesus. And so they called them the way. They did not believe, but they spoke evil of the way before the multitude. 
So he departed from them, he withdrew the disciples, and he reasoned daily in the school of Tyrannus. He's like, you know what? The synagogue, you guys aren't going to receive my message. I'll go find a place to teach others about Jesus. So he goes to the school of Tyrannus. He finds a storefront. He finds a building where he can rent it or whatever he was doing. And all day long, he would reason with these people. He shares the gospel. And then this continued for two years, verse 10 says, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. It continued for two years. Now, this is convicting to me, okay? Because Paul went to this school of Tyrannus when people wouldn't hear him. He didn't get all dejected and give up for a couple weeks and kind of stay in his pity party like I do. What he did was he goes, let's find another avenue. This is a closed door. Let's go find an open one. I'll talk to other people. And he went to people who had probably never heard the grace of God, never heard about the Jewish God, never heard about Yahweh. And so he shared with them the truth about what Jesus did. They were convicted of their sin. They repented and they believed. And he got to teach them for two years. And it says, as a result of this, we're always thinking about results, right? If I'm going to do something, what is it going to produce? If I'm going to use all my time that I have allotted to me, I want to produce something from it. That's why I like mowing the grass. If I'm going to spend some time, I can see what I did, what I accomplished. If I want to work on my car, I want to accomplish something. I don't want to stop halfway and have nothing done and then waste all that time. Paul was the same way, but it says here he continued for two years to get the result. He says this, So that all who dwelt in Asia, this is talking about modern-day Turkey, they heard the word of the Lord Jesus. They didn't hear Paul's opinions. They heard God's word through Paul, and it says both Jews and Greeks. And it says in verse 11, God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. Then some, and so it goes on, but there was an experience of the power of God. Now, is salvation all about experiences and emotional highs and excitement and it's I don't believe that it is, because Paul was there for two years. It was a steady, plowing straight rows, sowing seed in the soil, praying for God to soften people's hearts, to receive the word of God, and let God's word confront them about where they were living, and let him make the changes. And so we see that the impact, and we get it in a few sentences, but that's two years of Paul's life. How many times have you worked two whole years towards something you thought was important? And we do it for school, right? Graduation's coming up. That's 12 years. Now we see it in spurts, and we do it because our parents tell us to, and we're involved in it, but it's a work of not one or two days. When we go to cook a meal many times, we like the microwave thing. I do. I like the microwave things. I like for it to happen quickly because I'm hungry now, not an hour from now. And, and, and when we want to contact somebody, we want to text them. And if they don't respond right away, we're like, what's wrong? Or why won't they get back to me? Don't they know I need to talk to them? We, we want everything done right away. But anything worth having takes time. Look at a simple garden. You, you sow the seed or you plant your saplings or, or whatever you do in your orchard. But you do it knowing that it's going to take time before there's fruit. Paul knew that the fruit that would be produced from his investment in that community in Ephesus, he knew it would take time. He knew that that growth would not happen overnight. 
And he was willing to stake his life on it. Our lives aren't long. And we spend so much time investing in other things, and that's no problem because we all have goals and things that God's planted in us that we desire to seek to come to fruition. Raising children is one of those things. It's a, it's a, it's a labor of love. It's a labor of, of sacrifice. The sleepless nights, we still have them. But Paul was laboring for the kingdom of God to come on earth. He wanted to invest in the kingdom of God. He wanted to see people's lives changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he wanted to see society transformed. And it took two years, but we see this investment was worthwhile because God started turning upside down the culture that Paul and these Ephesian believers lived in. And we find out later that he stayed another 18 months in Ephesus because it was hard. Many times when things are hard, we're, we're, we have the tendency to back away and go, well, it's too hard, I'm out. Paul stayed there for another 18 months, and we see that his investment was worthwhile. In ch- chapter 20, in verse 17, just one page over in Acts, he comes back to this Ephesian area, but because he spent so much time there before and because he's got a travel schedule, he, he goes to a place called Miletus off the coast. And when he gets there, he talks to the elders, no longer just disciples, no longer just other Christians, but he's going to talk to the leaders of the Ephesian church. Paul got to leave, and the church kept going. The church wasn't centered around Paul. It was centered around Jesus. And so when he gets there in Ephesus, or in the region of Ephesus, from Miletus, verse 17 says, he sent to Ephesus, And he called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, You know from the first day that I came to Asia in what manner I always lived among you, serving the Lord with humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. It wasn't an easy work, he says. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but I proclaimed it to you, and I taught you publicly and from house to house. Paul didn't just teach in the the house of the Lord. He went to their homes. And the early church began with churches in homes. That's where it was taking place. And then it says there, teaching from house to house. Um, I lost my place. And I taught you publicly and from house to house. Verse 21, testifying to Jews and to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith towards Jesus Christ. And see now, I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there. He was heading to Jerusalem, where we know that ultimately he was arrested. And the Lord told him over and over as he was headed back towards Jerusalem, Hey, when you go there, you're going to be bound in chains, and you're going to eventually get to go to Rome. Well, Paul wanted to go to Rome to share the gospel, but he didn't get to go there a free man. He, got to, he went there as a prisoner. But he says, None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul knew his calling. He knew what his life was meant to be spent for. And because of that, nothing could deter him from what God gave him to do. What has God given you to do? Do you know? What specifically does God want for you to do? And I ask that question knowing full and well what God has called me to do. For me, my life looks a lot different than most people because my weekends are primarily getting ready for Sunday because I work all week. And there are many times that I'm robbed of joy 
because I look at other people's lives and I go, I wish I had time to do that. Now, we all have things like that. Like, of course I would do that if I didn't have kids in the house. Or, of course I would do that if I had that kind of money. Or all the things that we lose contentment over. But the contentment is not had so much in God giving us more money so we can't do the things. Or giving us more time. Or making it so that I don't have to work all week and prepare for church. That's not where contentment is found. Contentment is found, and Paul found it. And he could not be moved because he found contentment in his relationship with Jesus. And in his relationship with Jesus, he found out what Jesus wanted him to do. And then he started doing it, and he would not be stopped. If you know personally from your time with Jesus, and that's where it, all, it can come from, what Jesus wants for you to do with your life, that he is purchased by his blood, and you will put your life to that, your time, your efforts, your money, whatever it is that God has given you, if you will put your full effort towards that goal, Nothing will deter you from it, not because a pastor told you to do it, not because your family told you to do it, not because of tradition or other people's expectations, but because Jesus gave it to you, you'll have joy in it, and it will be a fruitful work. Paul was a man with a focus on the Lord, and because of that, it was a fruitful work. So fast forward. This is the beginning of the Ephesian church, right? What's this have to do with Paul? Nothing, except that... God used him to spend a good portion of his life and his missionary journeys at this place in Ephesus, later going back to invest in the elders. And because God was the one that the work was centered around, it produced fruit. And the fruit was changed lives that wanted to go change lives. Disciples that made disciples. So as this church was planted, it grew. People were strengthened in their faith. They were encouraged to spend time with Jesus and find out what he wanted them to do. There was a couple of individuals that were convinced by the Lord, not Paul, not another person. They were convinced in their relationship with the Lord. We are called to go share the gospel in Colossae. And so you know what they did? They went. And when they went there, they shared the gospel with people in Colossae. And because of that, Paul got to write a letter to the Colossians. Now they had problems, but the gospel had been shared there. So Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, we're finally there. Paul, he would always write who it was from first because it was on a scroll, and it would be at the very heading of it. It says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, reminding you, Paul knew what he was called to be. He knew the will of God for his life. He said, Paul, an apostle, a sent one from Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So Timothy is with him while he's writing this letter. Now, Paul is writing this letter just like Philippians from prison. He's in jail still. So he writes several letters from prison, uh, one of which was Philippians, one of which was um, Colossians, another one was Philemon, and another one was 2 Timothy. So he writes this, and he writes verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. He's not only saying who he's writing to, but he's also writing down their address. You guys remember formal letter writing? You write the, your name and where you're from and what company you work with and your address and your phone number and your email. Who knows what all you put in there anymore? Nobody writes letters. But then there's the second heading you would write, who you're writing to, who it's addressed to. And what it's regarding. Well, Paul writes to the saints. Saints aren't stained glass people that died 100 years ago that did good works. Saints are people who trust in Jesus. That's our position. 
But then he gives their address. You're saying, well, he doesn't give their address. He says Colossae. His fir- their first address, and yours too, is in Christ. In Christ is a location. He says, to the saints and the faithful brethren, in Christ. Your first address, whether you feel this way every day or not, is you are in Christ. And then he says, who are also in Colossae. We live in Arcadia Valley. But first and foremost, the way that God looks at it is we are in Christ. By the way, that's the safest place you can be. No matter where you live physically, the safest place you can be is in Christ. And then he says this, a blessing, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now keep in mind that I've already said that Paul is writing a correction letter to them. they got some problems. He's getting ready to discipline them. But anytime God disciplines us, it is by His grace. We think about God's grace and His forgiving us of our sins, but many times His grace is shown in Him correcting us, Him disciplining us. It is a grace to my daughter when she is raging and breaking all the rules and running out in the street or whatever she's doing when I spank the hiney. I spank the hiney to correct her and to keep her from getting hurt. That is grace. I'm giving her what she doesn't deserve. She's a disobedient child. I should let her get what she deserves. How many times have you heard that? People get what they deserve. Yeah, you you don't want them to get that. If you know what it's like to be a saved sinner, you want other people to experience the grace of God so they don't get what they deserve. And so Paul writes to them, grace and peace. It's a peaceful place to be when you're corrected by the Lord because you know he cares enough and he's paying attention to your life enough. It's not too busy. There should be peace in that when God corrects you. Verse 3, he says this. He starts off with thanksgiving. We give thanks to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Praying always. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints. He says, I'm praying for you all the time. He's never met these people, by the way. Sometimes I pray easier for people I have met and I know what they're going through. But Paul's praying for them as he would someone that he knew intimately since he heard of their faith. Now, he's got a special personal interest, get it? I mean, it's like uh, we raise our children in hopes that one day they will raise their children. And so there's a special connection between grandparents and grandchildren, right? And part of that is because they're getting to see fruit from all their labor, years and years invested in their children, and now their children are having children, and they get to reap the benefit of it. And now sometimes, in the long run, because parents didn't get to invest in their children, or because circumstances weren't right, or because they didn't know Jesus, that can be a hard thing, because grandchildren grow up to be like their kids, and if the kids didn't know Jesus, and they're kind of raging and doing all these kind of crazy things. It's a humbling thing because you're like, oh my gosh, I didn't realize that what I was doing when I was raising my kids had such far-reaching consequences. You know, I, I was talking to somebody the other day, and I said, you know, the hard part about raising kids is that in, in full bloom, when the kids need the most investment, is usually when parents are most focused on what they do for a living because they're trying to provide for the family. But because of that, we don't invest as heavily in our children. And then 
towards the end where we get a little bit older and we're retired or whatever God gives for us, we have more free time, and now the kids are trying to raise their kids, and they don't have time to spend with us when we'd like to invest in the things we didn't invest in them when we were growing up because of all the, the things we had going on. And so what we need to do is, is, like Paul, he invested when he was the busiest. Paul was working, he was making tents, and he was teaching people about Jesus at the same time, but he, he worked as hard as he could because he knew down the road, and now he didn't even know he was going to be in prison, now he gets to reap the benefits of, essentially, spiritual grandchildren. Not by right, not because they were born in the right family, but because the gospel kept going forth. And so, kind of a segue, but, but he says, Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and your love for all the saints, we're praying for you. If you know somebody that proclaims to be a believer, you should pray for them. Because they're going to be the ones that you notice most of the glaring problems in their lives. Don't complain about it, pray for them. We all got stuff that we're blind to in our own lives. He says, I pray for you because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel. I pray for you because of the hope that's laid up for you in heaven. I don't want you to miss out on it. I don't want you to become disqualified. I want you to continue being rooted and grounded in the truth of God. He says, of which you heard before in the word of truth of the truth of the gospel which has come to you as it is also in the world and is bringing forth, there's that word again, fruit. Paul says, I pray for you because of the hope that we have in heaven. I pray for you because our goal is not this place. I pray for you because of the hope you have in heaven of which you have heard of in the word of the truth of the gospel. No one is born again unless they hear the word of God told to them in real everyday life. Did you know that? Think about your own salvation. Did you get saved because God came to you in a dream? Although he does that in countries where there's much persecution. There are Muslims coming to faith in droves because of dreams and visions. God is getting through the persecution. But here's the other deal. I heard of the gospel because someone I worked with cared about people and cared about Jesus enough to tell me the truth. He saw the falsehoods. He saw the things that were in my life that were ungodly. And he didn't call me out on my ungodly actions. He called me to repentance on my inward problem. He didn't look at the symptoms and try to transform them. He looked at the root source of the problem. And the root source of the problem was I didn't know Jesus. I wasn't rooted and grounded in the word of truth. And so he shared it with me. He showed me that faith in Christ is a reasonable thing. He showed me that the blood of Christ can cleanse me of all the unrighteousness from my past. He showed me that the gospel can save and that it, it renews and restores purpose for life. And he showed me that Jesus loved me personally, that it wasn't just a generic truth. And so it has come to you and it has also in all the world and is bringing forth fruit. This gospel that you trust in is bringing forth fruit in not just here, but elsewhere. As it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. Someone shared it with you, you heard it and received it, and now you're heeding it, you're living by it. As you also learn from Epaphras. Epaphras was one of the guys that, that went and shared the truth, and the church grew out of that sharing. Our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras is excited because the word of the gospel is changing lives. So he goes and he tells Paul, and Paul 
in response, prays for them. And then he says this, and we're going to just get into it a little bit this week because we're short on time. But he says in verse 9, For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom and in spiritual understanding. Paul is explaining, here's what I'm specifically praying. This is what I'm praying for you. And I have to tell you that as I read this this week, I just got on my knees and I prayed this for everyone in our church. I prayed, since the day we heard it, we do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of God's will. I want you guys to know, not what I care about, but what God has placed in you as far as his calling on your lives. A lot of the confusion, a lot of the stress uh, doesn't necessarily go away, but it gets simpler. When we know God's will for our lives, it gives us a focus and it helps us to realize what we're not called to, which some things we're not capable of doing because of what God has done in our, us because of how he's made us, but also because of the way that God wants to reveal to you that he has equipped you for a specific work. We don't have to be spread out like dinner on the ground. That's what my wife always says. You pull up to an intersection and you, you're sitting there and you're waiting. And you're like, gosh, they're just far enough apart I can't get in. She says they're spread out like dinner on the ground because that's what her dad says. But sometimes we don't realize that we only have so much time and effort that we can put into life and to put into our things that are going on. And we have a bucket. I kind of look at it like a bucket of water. God's given us a bucket of water. That is our influence. That's our time. That's our resources. And many times, because we have so many interests, it's like if we took a, a huge parking, Six Flags parking lot. Picture that. Everybody can relate to that, right? Six Flags parking lot or Lowe's parking lot. You look at a Lowe's parking lot, it's huge. No, let's, let's go to Menards. That thing, what in the world? Biggest parking lot. I'm pretty sure that there should be enough room in Menards to have all of Six Flags inside of there. I mean, no doubt. So as you look at Menards, look at that parking lot. Take a thimble of water and pour it on the parking lot. How far does it go? How far can it spread? It, it's, it, it spreads out pretty good, but it's, it's, only, it's shallow. Our impact in this life is not meant to be shallow, by the way. But if we take the amount of effort and the amount of resources and the amount of finances that God has given us, and we pour it into a thimble, which is a specific thing, it can get deeper, right? Now, we should probably make it a little bigger because I think thimble is probably too tiny. But even take a five-gallon bucket. Say your life is a five-gallon bucket. And God's given this bucket to you to be a steward over. To, to water people, to invest in people, to invest time and effort in all that you have. And you, you're like, you know what? I have all these friends. Imagine if it was the friends that you have on Facebook, if you're on Facebook. I looked the other day, and Facebook told me I had 900 friends. Do I know all of them? Probably not. People add me, and I add them. But we want to invest in the people we know. And most of us know more people than we can physically invest in or spiritually invest in. But picture the people that you know as the Menards parking lot and dump a five-gallon bucket of water. What does it do? It spreads out, and you really can't even tell you made a, a, an impact because it just it all spreads out. But if you take a five-gallon bucket of water and you dump it into a tall glass. How many glasses can you fill with a, a five-gallon bucket of water? You can fill quite a few glasses, but it still ends. It's still only so many cups. 
And so the reality is, is we can only invest so much in this life. But he says this, we can be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom. So we can use that bucket of water we've been given to invest in the specific lives that God's called us to. And he says that you will be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. God wants to give us wisdom and he wants to give us understanding. That you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, just him, just one person. How many people do you try to please every day? Do you realize that we're only called to please one as a Christian? Do you realize that if we're pleasing to the Lord, it will affect all our other relationships? And the ones that we should be pleasing, we will. And the ones that we don't really need to care so much about what they think, we won't be pleasing to them and it'll be okay. We were not born to please man. We were not born to be people pleasers. So, uh, and I say that because specifically this week I realized that I was all worked up because I was trying to please people. And God said, just please me. That's hard enough, but please me. Live pleasing to me and then leave the rest to me. He says, walking worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. However much you know about God right now, realize that we are to increase. He wants to spread us out, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power for all patience and long suffering with joy. He wants to give us patience with joy. He wants us to be strengthened with his power. He says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of this inheritance of the saints in the light. You are qualified to inherit what God has for you because of what He has done to make you qualified. He has delivered us from the power of darkness, conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love, in whom we have redemption through His blood and forgiveness of sins. So I'm just going to touch really quickly on why Paul writes to this church. They were in a small town. They were stuck between east and west. It was a trade route. And in between this trade route, they would have people travel through all the time that had lots of eastern philosophies, like Hinduism and Buddhism and, and all of these isms that, you know, where you sit like a lotus leaf and you contemplate your navel and that makes you more spiritual. All these outward practices. And then there was the west, Judaism and legalism. If you do X, Y, and Z, then you're holy before God. And you're, he's pleased with you because you've worked so hard to attain it. Both of which are lies. Both of which change our outward actions, but they don't change our inward source, our heart problem. And so Paul writes to them and he says, you know, there was this group, the Gnostics, they came to the Colossian church and they go, hey, we've got, you know, you guys have gotten Jesus and that's good. That's a start. Uh, but there's all these other teachings that if you kind of take a little bit from each of these religions, that will make you a complete spiritual being. And then you'll be right. And then you'll have purpose and meaning. And, but those are all lies, okay? Because if anyone ever says to you, yeah, you got Jesus, but I got this, this, and this, and Jesus, then what you're doing is you're saying Jesus isn't enough. And what the book of Colossians says is this. Jesus is sufficient for knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. If you know Jesus, you can have spiritual understanding, wisdom, and knowledge of God's will for your life. If you know Jesus, he will transform you and cause you to walk worthy of the Lord. If you know Jesus, you will be pleasing to God, and he will make you fruitful. If you're abiding in Jesus, 
your life will produce fruit to the glory of God. If you know Jesus, you will be increasing in the knowledge of God. You won't stagnate. You'll continue to grow. He will expand your borders and give you the capacity to take in all he wants you to know. If you know Jesus, you will have strength and might according to God's power, not your own. So though the, though the flesh grows weary, we will not grow faint because we are waiting upon the Lord to be our strength. And then he says, basically, if you know Jesus, you will be patient. You will grow to be patient, long-suffering, and you will have joy in circumstances. And you will be qualified to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints. If you know Jesus, you will recognize and remember that he has delivered you from the power of darkness, and he has conveyed you into the kingdom of the Son of his love. And in him, we have the redemption through his blood. There is assurance. If you start to doubt whether or not you're right before God, your assurance doesn't come from what you do or how you perform or your results. It comes from what he has done by his blood, and we have the forgiveness of our sins. There's hope in that. There's encouragement in that. And so we're going to get more into this. But what he's writing to them is this, and we can be found in 1 Peter. Sorry, I wrote my note, and then I forgot what it was. 1 Peter. Apparently I didn't write it down. Sorry, 2 Peter. Hmm. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 16. I think. I'm sorry, guys. I cannot find it, but here's what the verse says in 2 Peter. The verse says this. God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness in the person of Jesus Christ. God has given us everything that we need in Jesus Christ. In John chapter 1, it says this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word put on flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ is the answer to every problem we have. We don't need to find some other uh, philosophy. We don't need to go to a psychiatrist. We don't need to use worldly wisdom to try to fix our problems. Jesus Christ is the very express image of God. And if we have questions, if we have problems, if we need teaching or understanding, Jesus is the answer to all the things we need. It sounds simplistic, and many people reject that truth, but the people in in Colossae, We're being tempted to go to other gods to try to find out answers and solutions for their problems. And all of our answers can be found in Jesus. Jesus is preeminent. He is the one we need to be rooted in and grounded in. Because when our roots are in Christ, we cannot be shaken. When our trust is in the Lord who does not change for eternity, we will not be moved. But when we start to trust in other things, what we do is we take our roots out of Jesus and we put them in something that will fail us. A person, a philosophy, an understanding, another religion, and and none of it will actually be the answer to our problems. And so um, Paul tells them, beware lest you start trusting in things that will not be sufficient for what you need. And so as we close, let's pray.
Father, my mind has been scattering this morning, and, and uh, I ask for your forgiveness for that. But I thank you for Paul, who was a man who was willing to lay down his life and do what you gave him to do. He was faithful throughout all the trials and the tribulations. And yet, Lord, because he was trusting in you and because he was doing what you gave him to do, not only was the Ephesian church fruitful, um, but the Colossian church uh, sprung up as a branch from their church and really a branch from Jesus. And so, Lord, help us to know what your will is. Help us to see that Jesus is the one that we need to put our trust in, that there's no other thing, no other philosophy, no other um, understanding that we need. We don't need to be a super saint. We just need to simply hear your words, to obey them, and to be pleasing to you. And so, Father, give us a simplicity as a child. Help us to be childlike believers. Help us to long to hear your words. And when we hear them, Lord, help us to be faithful and to do them. I love you, Lord. I thank you for this Sunday where we get to celebrate uh, moms. Lord, thank you for my mom who was steadfast and, and sacrificed for me. But Lord, more than that, thank you for Jesus who sacrificed. Thank you for Paul who was raised up and trusted Jesus alone. And thank you for the fruit that was produced. Help us not to grow weary in well-doing. Help us not to be confused in the middle of our circumstances and to look for help in other places. Help us to fully rest and call upon your name. That, that's what the early church did. That's what they did in Genesis. There was this godly generation of people, and it says all that they did was they called upon the name of the Lord. Lord, help us to be individuals and families who in our circumstances, in our problems, in the things we're joyful about, who are known by calling on the name of the Lord. So, Lord, we love you. We thank you for this word. We pray that you would give us understanding this week and what we need to know uh, from your word so that we can be fruitful, so that we can not waste our lives. And so, Father, we can raise up another godly generation from our children. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's close with a song.